Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Grace and peace to you. Um, We're in the middle of a series on the church community. We've come to um, the part of the series where we're taking a look at the practices of church community. That is, what we're talking about are the practices or the manners or the customs that help us to be the kind of community that the gospel would have us to be. Now, the first practice, and we talked about this last week, was that of sharing the table together or simply eating a meal together. Now, this week, we're building upon that theme with another practice, and that is sharing with one another. Now, we introduced last week this concept or this idea called koinonia. Um, It's a Greek word that's sometimes translated into English as fellowship or participation or sharing. It's one of those very fundamental ideas to the New Testament, and it undergirds what we said last week about breaking bread and what we're going to say this week about sharing with one another. Because we have this thing between us called koinonia, we ought to eat together and we ought to share our stuff with one another. So I'll explain more as we go, but that's the main idea. Koinonia that leads to sharing. And we'll break it down under three headings. So this is the quick outline of, of where we'll be this morning. We'll talk about the what of sharing. We'll talk about the how of sharing. And lastly, we'll talk about the why of sharing. So that is what it means to share our stuff. So we'll take a look at the passages we see that demonstrated in the New Testament. And then we'll talk about how we can go about doing that. And lastly, why we should do it. So fairly straightforward. So let's start with the what this morning. Now, if you notice, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 follow the same pattern. Both passages begin with the church, the group of disciples in prayer. They're seeking the Lord together. And in both cases, the answer to that prayer is the Spirit. So Acts 2 says, verse 4 They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, proclaiming the mighty deeds of God. And then Acts 4 says, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. That is, the immediate result of the Spirit in their lives is boldness to proclaim the gospel. So they start in prayer. God answers that prayer with the Spirit. And that leads them to go out and preach the good news. But as we noted last week, there's also another result of the gift of the Spirit, and that is fellowship. Acts chapter 2 says, verse 44, All those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. And then Acts chapter 4, our passage this morning, verse 32 says, Those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. So again, do you notice the pattern and the similarity? When the Spirit of God is at work, he creates fellowship. That is koinonia, or a common life. And that common life leads to sharing all things in common. In other words... The sharing of material goods was not simply the result of enthusiasm, 
or even fanaticism. It was the work of the Spirit. Now, I mentioned that off the bat to just demonstrate that however idyllic and utopian this picture of things is, where everyone's sharing their possessions and the church is all together and so on and so forth, however idyllic that picture is, it is authoritative for us. Meaning, in one way or another, it's our duty to emulate this in our church. Because when the Spirit is at work in a church community, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. However, we want to ask that question with a little bit more specificity. What does it actually look like? Because this passage, for obvious reasons, generates some pretty strong opinions. For many, the business about common property and redistribution sounds a little too close to comfort for socialism or communism. And of course, some have interpreted it that way, saying that the scriptures endorse those systems. And others have argued on the opposite side, saying that the scriptures actually support free market and competition. Now, thankfully, we're not going to get into any of the economics this morning, but we do need to be clear, just so that we're not sort of, I don't know, mystified or left wondering, we do need to be clear about what this passage is and is not saying. So what I want to do for this first portion of the sermon is point out three things about what we see here. And then we'll work toward how can we actually put this into practice. So the first thing is that the selling of property and of possessions and then turning those proceeds over to the apostles and then the apostles redistributing that money to those who had need or goods or we don't know exactly the practice is that this whole sort of system was entirely voluntary. That's the first thing we do notice. It was voluntary, meaning it wasn't required or forced upon the disciples. Rather, it arose out of genuine love as a response to the Spirit of God. Now, we know this because later in Acts, um, a couple in the church, this is Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, we don't need to know all the details, but they lied about their contribution. They had sold some property, they brought it to the apostles, and they lied about how much they were actually giving. And so, this is how Peter responds to them. Acts chapter 5, verse 4, he says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after was it sold, after it was sold, rather, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So Peter's words are very clear, and they make clear that converts to the church and to the way of Jesus Christ, did not have to sell their land. Peter says to him, you didn't have to lie. It's your land. It's not ours. And not only that, even after um, Ananias sold the land, he was able to do whatever he wanted with the proceeds. Peter says to him, after it was sold, was it not under your control? He's telling him, it's your money, not ours, and God's going to provide for us and we don't need your money. And that presents a much different picture than the communist or a communist or socialist state, where one's property and wealth, your belongings, literally belong to the state. The apostles, as we see demonstrated here, were not laying claim to anyone's wealth. They weren't requiring title deeds and bank account numbers of the members of the church. 
If they were to do that, if somehow this were enforced upon the church, it would be a violation of the new covenant. Now remember, God on Mount Sinai entered into a covenant with the children of Israel. That's what we call the old covenant. They broke that covenant. And so God promised that he would create a new covenant. Now, at the heart of the new covenant is this promise that God would write the law, not on tablets of stone. Remember, he wrote it on the tablets of stone and gave it to Moses. He wouldn't write it on tablets of stone, but on the human heart. This is Jeremiah 31, 33, God speaking. He says, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. Meaning, the law would no longer be something external to us that our wills have to submit to, or else, right? Or else there's a punishment, or else there's some sort of consequence. Rather, the law now has gone from something external to internal. And we obey, not because we have to, not because there's some law hanging over me and some sort of threat if I don't obey it, not because we have to, but because we want to. That's the promise of the new covenant. God will put his law in our hearts. So when we see well-to-do brothers and sisters selling their uh, property, it's not because the apostles are clamping down on them and enforcing a law of redistribution. It's because their hearts have been transformed by the Spirit of God, and now obedience arises from within out of love. And so if there's ever to be this kind of sharing in the church, it can never be enforced. It always has to be voluntary. As we'll see later, uh, Paul says, not grudgingly, because God loves a cheerful giver. So that's the first thing. It was voluntary. Now, the second thing is that private ownership continued in the church. Private ownership continued in the church. Again, Peter's question to Ananias makes this very clear. He says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? That is, no one was required to relinquish their property to the church to then be put in a common fund. Moreover, the scripture adds, and this is verse 32, not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. Now, the important word here is claimed, which seems to indicate that private property remained in principle, but they shared it as common property in practice. Now, it was mine, but I claimed, or I acted as if it wasn't my own. That is, brothers and sisters in the church kept their title deeds, but in practice, because of what the Spirit was doing, they shared everything in common. Mikasa es sukasa, right? That's the idea. Now, the third thing, we have, it was voluntary. They remained, they retained common property. And the third, it, that it was, it was need-based. Selling and sharing of property was need-based. So Luke tells us, this is chapter 2, verse 45, they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, listen, as anyone might have need. That is, there was no once-for-all liquidation of property, but periodic acts of charity as need arose. In other words, these measures were due to exceptional circumstances, and they were not the general course of things. So it was less a full-blown economic system than it was a loving and generous response to desperate need. And that it's according to need is important for us to realize 
Because when we hear that, that it was according to need, it tells us that the church members were expected to provide for themselves and to provide for their families. The scripture says, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor so that he will have something to share with one who has need. And again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. So when we see this sort of selling of property and then helping out the brothers and sisters who are in need, there's an expectation, however, that people are not freeloaders. Hard and honest work is commended. However, hard work, as we know, does not always lift someone out of poverty. So on the one hand, the scripture says, this is Proverbs 14, verse 23, in all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. So hard work leads to profit. But on the other hand, it says, Proverbs 3, verse 20, 13, verse 23, excuse me, he says, abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. So the idea there is that where need remains, for all sorts of factors, despite hard work, the church is to step in and take care of its own. So we see three things. One, that this uh, selling and sharing was voluntary, that private property was retained, and then that two, it was based according to need. So what we want to talk about now is the goal of all this. What were the apostles in the early church after when they were sharing their goods with one another? Well, look at Acts chapter 4, verse 34. It says, For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. And it kind of cuts off there, and it says they would distribute them at the apostles' feet. So in other words, the goal of this selling and then helping brothers and sisters was to eliminate need in the church. There was no one needy among them. Now, the question is why? Why were they trying to eliminate need? Well, because the toleration of needy brothers and sisters. Now, I don't mean like you know, I need this for my recreation. I'm talking, and what the scripture is talking about specifically is those who don't have the necessary goods for living, right? Uh, food, shelter, clothing, etc. If we were to tolerate that kind of need in our church, it would violate our fellowship. It would violate the principle of our koinonia. How could we claim to have a shared life and hold back our material resources from the members of the body who are in desperate need. It would be a blatant contradiction of the spiritual reality of koinonia. Christ has brought us together through the Spirit. And because we have this spiritual unity, there's a material obligation, as we'll see later. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul expands upon this topic. And he gives us something as a church to aim at. And in 2 Corinthians 8, he's talking, he, rather, excuse me, he's taking a collection from the Corinthian church, which was fantastically wealthy. He's taking a collection to support the church in Jerusalem 
which had fallen on hard times due to a famine. Right? And you can imagine this is sort of like Great Depression era sort of happening in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. So he wants to take relief to them. And if you read First and Second Corinthians, you'll see that one of the main problems that Paul had with the Corinthians um, was around money. They were always disagreeing about how to handle these things. So here in our passage, Paul is going a little bit um, above and beyond to explain his reasoning, to tell them, here's why we want to do this and support our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. So this is 2 Corinthians chapters 8, uh, verses 13 through 15. He says, For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. So Paul's goal, and he mentions it twice, is equality. But what does he mean by equality? Well, he makes it clear to the Corinthians that it's not a reversal of roles. When he says equality, what he doesn't mean is that the Corinthians become poor and the Jerusalem church becomes rich. He says, this is not for the ease of others and your affliction. That is, when Paul says he's after equality, what it's not is a sort of fully egalitarian communism where everybody stands on the same economic level, um, making the same exact income or whatever. Rather, when he says that, what he's after is the elimination of extremes. He's after the elimination of extremes. And he grounds this in um, Israel's wilderness experience. Right, you guys have heard of Reaganomics. This is Mananomics. He quotes from Exodus 16, 18. He says, He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. This is in reference to when the children of Israel were out in the wilderness, and they had no food, they had no way of sustaining themselves, so God rained down manna upon them. And each morning, Israel would go out in the camp, and they would collect manna. And this is what Moses tells us. He who gathered much didn't have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. And so Paul takes this principle and he applies it to the Corinthians and to the Jerusalem church. And what he wants is that the Corinthians who have much, not to have too much, and therefore to incur sin, sort of accumulation of greediness, of hoarding. Instead, he wants them to use their excess to support their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem so that in their time of need, they would have no lack. So that's what he means by equality. Again, not a full egalitarianism, but the elimination of extremes on both ends of the spectrum. So what's intolerable for us in the church is, on the one hand, the concentration of wealth, and on the other, abject poverty. These are to be eliminated so that there is a relative equality and that there are no needy, desperate persons in the church. So again, this is the goal of all that we see in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, that there would be no needy among them. And if we're to have that, that means that those of us, which is essentially all of us who have gathered much, 
are then obligated to share with those who have need. So that's the what. A voluntary sharing that is ordered toward the elimination of need as an example of our koinonia, of our fellowship together. The spiritual bond undergirds all of that, and we'll return to that at the end. Okay, so that's the first part, the how. Let's talk about the what. Let's talk about, or excuse me, what did I just say? Let's talk about how God intends to accomplish this in our church. I've got a severe brain fog this morning. Um, But I want to give you three practices um, that are based on the passage that we just considered. And the first practice is very simple, is just to pray. Is to pray. The radical generosity and the sort of community that's demonstrated in Acts is not a human work. It's the Spirit alone who can accomplish this. I had an email exchange this week with a friend um, about the church's practice of sharing and selling in relation to communism. Now, he's a Marxist, and so I wanted to get his opinion. I want to see what he said. And he said that the church, you know, this is what Marx said, that it made a good start, but it failed because it did not have control of the means of production. In other words, it was a failed experiment. And to fully achieve the communist ideal, workers needed to control factories, machinery, land, commodities, and etc. right? This is the idea of violent revolution, and you take over the means of oppression. Now, I'm no economist, but I do know human nature and communism and socialism and any other system that's out there are all doomed in the end because of human greed and sloth. The only thing that can achieve relative equality and can eliminate genuine need is the power of the Spirit. All systems, whatever they are, will crumble in the end, no matter how logically consistent or economically practical, because they cannot bear the weight of human corruption. And so when we talk about this sort of ideal community and working our way toward helping our brothers and sisters, it can never be legislated from the outside, because that can't do anything to affect the heart. It must arise from within as a free response of the will. And that takes prayer, to share with our brothers and sisters, to do the things that the Scripture expects of us. It takes prayer. We have to ask that the Father would fill us with the spirit of his son so that we'd have this kind of love and concern for one another. And apart from this power, this vision is a non-starter. There's there's no hope in it. So my one encouragement then is just to simply pray and to ask that the spirit would strengthen those bonds of koinonia between us and that we'd see our needy brothers and sisters not as burdens but as those whom we share Christ with that we'd be, as the scripture says, of one heart and soul. And so just pray this week and be open to the Spirit's leading and whatever he might do, or if he even puts a particular person on your heart. So we're supposed to pray. The second thing is to see our possessions differently. When the Spirit descended upon the church, he completely reversed their values. That is, he taught them to treat their possessions differently. Homes and goods and extra income used to be private things. These were reserved for personal use and personal enjoyment. But when the Spirit came, He interrupted all that. 
and private things became common things. And no one was possessed by their possessions. When the Spirit came, they saw their possessions as subordinate to the good of their brothers and sisters. The Spirit changed things. Uh, Justin Martyr, one of the, the, the early church fathers, writing maybe uh, uh, less than a hundred years after this, he put it this way. He says, We who formerly delighted in fornication now embrace chastity alone. We who formerly used magical arts dedicate ourselves to the good and unbegotten God. And we who valued above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions now bring what we have into a common stock and communicate to everyone in need. The Spirit transforms the way we relate to our possessions. And though our possessions remain ours, no one's asking you to sell them and donate it to the church, Though they remain ours, we no longer treat them as such. And therefore, we open our lives and our hearts to our brothers and sisters in the church community who are in need. Now, again, I'm aware of all the political weirdness that gets involved with this and how intimidating it could sound, but this is very normal for families. It's what families do. We all have rooms and we all have our stuff. And private ownership needs to be respected. But in practice, in a family, we all share with one another. When push comes to shove, I have nothing that's not on the chopping block when it comes to the good of my wife, of my daughter, of my parents, of my brothers and sisters, and of the church family. Because that's more important. And so that's the way it ought to be among us. When the Spirit comes, we see our possessions differently. And then, quickly, the last practice is moderation. This is the number one principle of what we see in the Israelite experience. When God rained manna on his people, he commanded them specifically not to collect more than they needed for that particular day. That is, they were to go out and gather their manna. They were to consume all of it that very day and to leave nothing left over for the next day. And what it was intended to do was to keep them from hoarding Um, more than they needed in gathering up a stock. And Exodus tells us that those who disobeyed, they woke up the next day to go get their share of manna to find out that it had bred worms and became foul. So the economic lesson is fairly obvious. Do not retain more than you need or else it will spoil, if not literally, then figuratively. As Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, not our weekly or monthly or yearly bread. Now, we need to use some wisdom here because exactly what our needs are is something that we have to work out before God. We can't lay down a general rule for everybody that's applicable to all. As we seek God in prayer and as we're trying to be true to what he tells us, He will show us what is acceptable and not acceptable according to our faith. And that's why I just want to recommend the practice of moderation. we got to work those things out for ourselves as families and as individuals, but generally we can recommend moderation. It means that we should refrain from excess. He who gathered much did not have too much. We should not have an excess and trim back on our lifestyles in order that we can be more generous. 
So there's nothing wrong with having extra or discretionary income. The rub comes, biblically speaking, when we decide how to use that income. And the scriptural inflection is always toward moderation for the purpose of sharing, for the purpose of helping our brothers and sisters. So we've seen the what. We've now looked at the how, which consists of praying for the Spirit of God, seeing our possessions differently, and then practicing moderation for the purpose of sharing. And now that we've put the what and the how in place, let's briefly turn to the last, which is the why. Why should we share with our brothers and sisters in need? The short answer is koinonia. In Romans 15, Paul is again talking about the collection that he intends to take to Jerusalem. And he again wants to get the Gentile churches, not just Corinth, but the churches in Macedonia, to help support the Jewish church. He says, Romans 15, verses 25 through 26, I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So he's telling them his itinerary. I'm going over because these brothers and sisters have been very generous to help. And then he adds, look at verse 27. He says, yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. He says, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister also to them in material things. So the Gentile churches, which, by the way, Achaia and Macedonia were poor regions, they contributed voluntary to this collection, but the apostle also says that they were obligated to. And where does this obligation arise from? Well, he says, if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Koinonia is at the heart of the apostle's argument. The Gentiles have shared, he says. There's our word, koinonia, or koinoneo. They've shared with the Jewish believers in spiritual things, namely the gospel. They have this spiritual bond, and therefore, Paul says, they're indebted to share with them in material things. So what he's saying is that the spiritual bond that we share with one another creates a material obligation. And if we share in the one, we should share in the other. If we have spiritual fellowship, we should also have material fellowship. Now, I have someone in my life who came back into my life recently after some time. Aaron and I have helped him a lot, paying for eyeglasses, uh, putting him up various times, getting his children clothes, and all kinds of different things. And this happened for about almost two years before he moved away. And toward the end, to be frank, it became a burden upon me. Not materially, we were fine, but spiritually. He was not an exceptionally hard worker, but neither was he a bum, so I had to keep helping him. The Lord put it on my heart, but I began to resent his constant asking, and it was a relief finally to me when he went away. But recently, he's back in town, and he's still in need. And of course, back came up my resentment until studying this text. And it caused me to relate to him differently, not as a burden, but as someone with whom I share Christ, someone with whom I share the Spirit of God, and someone with whom I share eternal life. 
And it's his perspective that when it sinks in, and I stop seeing him just simply as someone who's a, a nag upon me, it transforms my heart. Here is someone whom I share koinonia with, a fellow member of the body of Christ for whom Jesus Christ died and rose again. So yes, brother, I can get you sheets. I can get you a fan. Is there anything else? What else can I do for you? Because you're my brother. You're my friend. You're my own flesh and blood in the gospel of Christ. So to reiterate, the reason we're to share our material goods with our brothers and sisters is because we already share something more profound and valuable and permanent with them, the Spirit of the living God. And so the call is to see and to recognize and cherish that bond between us. Because it is, with no exaggeration or hyperbole, the most precious thing on earth. It was that for which Jesus Christ died and rose again. And so, where your heart has gone astray from this return, return to the love of the brethren. And lastly, as great as that reason is, that bond between us, it pales in comparison to the next. Uh, back in 2 Corinthians, Paul is continuing his crusade for a collection campaign. And he's trying to uh, persuade the Corinthians to contribute, which they already promised to do, without forcing them. He doesn't want to use his authority and just say, give, because you said you would. He wants it to arise from their own free will. So he says, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, he says, for God loves a cheerful giver. So he says, if you're going to give, it has to come from your own heart. No one can make you do it. And how does he get them, how does he motivate their hearts? Look at one of the most beautiful verses in all scripture, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul is asking them to do for others what has already been done for them. Jesus, rich in glory and honor, came to us and, to us and shared our condition. He became poor and wretched and despised. Why? That we might become rich. He shares our condition that we might share his. And of course, he's not talking about material wealth, but heavenly riches. In other words, what the apostle is telling the Corinthians and us is that the shoe is on the other foot. We are beggars too crippled and lame to work, too lazy to get a job, or simply too disobedient to obey the commandments. But we have received grace. Jesus came to us, and he lifted us out of our poverty and squalor to share in his heavenly riches, to be heirs of his kingdom. And his grace to us prompts us to be gracious to our brothers and sisters. And as long as we know this grace, we will continue to know ourselves as the recipients of a very costly generosity. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Therefore, we're obligated to share with those in need. And as we turn to the supper now, let me just invite you to know that grace once again. How great and how kind and how gentle Christ has been to us.
And let's celebrate that grace now. So I invite you guys forward to come receive the elements, take them to your places, and I'll lead us in just a moment.